As much as I have always loved reading, I'm ashamed to say that I did not learn how to truly read a book until I was a grown adult. When I was younger, I used to just pick up a book and plow through it, right? Nothing really wrong with that. But I tended to miss things. It was not until I read a very patronizing book entitled How to Read a Book, the classic guide to intelligent reading, that I realized just how superficially I had been engaging my books. It was as if an entirely new level of reading was opened up to me. It was not that I had to completely alter the way I read, but I learned how to stop taking shortcuts. For example, I learned how important it was to not ignore the author's biography or the table of contents. Sometimes the biography reveals why the author is writing on this particular subject, which can help in critiquing how accurately they make their argument, whether they made it convincingly or not. Just because the book is written catchy, in a catchy way, stylistic way, written by a TV host, whatever, doesn't make him or her an authoritative voice on this particular subject. I don't care what a news anchor says about a certain point of history. I want the guy who has a PhD in history to tell me how things went down. Because very simply, there is room for expertise and room for authority. The table of contents is important. If you look at it, it kind of reveals the flow of the argument, kind of shows how it's being structured and and how they're going to make their point. Perhaps most importantly, though, I learned how crucial it is not to skip the preface and the introduction of a book, any book. How many of you care to read prefaces and introductions? Most of you are like, I don't even care to read, so I'm not going to raise my hand. But for those of you that have read The Longest, you understand the importance of a preface and the importance of an introduction. For those of us that are just kind of toying around with reading, we don't really read the preface because all that's the front fluff, right? (laughs) That's just the stuff at the beginning. But man, when I learned how to read a preface... I experienced just how amazing it is in setting the tone for the entire book. Things, themes, and motifs, and details that were implanted in the preface that helped me to understand the rest of the book and where the author was going. I didn't understand at the time, but when I read How to Read a Book, it was actually going to help me in the end toward a fuller reading of Scripture. As much as I truly believe that every word in Scripture is the inspired word of God, I had little patience for things like Paul's introductions. They tend to be the same throughout every letter. I'd think to myself, yeah, yeah, Paul, we know who you are. No need for formalities. And then I'd skip verse 1 and 2 and jump down to verse 3 or wherever I thought Paul would start his real argument And that's where I'd pick up reading. I had no clue how many gospel gems I was missing and overlooking by doing so. Jumping Paul's introductions and prefaces is a terrible mistake. Paul's introductions, standard though they may be throughout his writings, sets the tone for his letters. And so we have a sermon today that's not going to move beyond verse 7. We're going to just deal, if you want to know what the sermon's about today, it's Paul's greeting. That's it. Paul telling us who he is, who he's talking to, and essentially we're going to bask in what happens when an apostle says hello. 
And it's going to be amazing if we pay attention to the preface. His introductions in his letters serve as that preface that orients our mind to the gospel and to our saving King Jesus. It's as if Paul is telling us this in Romans 1 through 7. You read a lot of things. You read text messages, Twitter posts, news feeds. You read all kinds of things. I'm Paul, a servant of Jesus. I'm going to tell you about the grace that has come in Christ. Now put down the other stuff and listen up. Powerful introduction. Why should you not be looking at notifications right now? Why should you not be listening into how your ESPN fantasy football is going to shake out today? Why should we take time and perk up when we hear that the Apostle Paul is writing? And that's what I hope we'll see today. As we begin our study in Romans, it would be a terrible mistake just to hop down to verse eight and say, okay, yeah, yeah. Paul says hi in verses one through seven. And we're going to start in verse eight. Compared with his other letters, Romans has the longest greeting of all of Paul's letters. It is, it is incredibly extended. And so there's a reason for that. As Paul is trying to saturate this greeting with deep gospel truths right from the beginning, this is his treatise on the gospel. And he wants you to know from the beginning, right from the moment he says hello, what he's all about. It will set the trajectory for the whole argument. And if we will allow it, I think, as we step foot into Romans, it will ease our eyes to Jesus and to see what Paul's really writing about. His primary subject is going to be the grace and peace that has come to us from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I just want that to wash over you for a moment. We, we have here a letter written by someone of incredible significance telling us that we have grace and peace. All the things you've been dealing with, all the anger that you've had, all the things that you've had to face, all the trauma that's in our world. I don't know of one person that has lived in this world in 2020, 2021, 2022, that has not somehow been singed by the fire of trauma in some way. Everything's been crazy. You have grace and peace from the Lord Jesus Christ. And he's going to take the whole letter of Romans to tell you how that happened. So listen up, put down Twitter, put down the ESPN fancy football, and let's pick up Romans. Romans begins with a simple but important self-introduction. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ. He opens his letter as if he's a herald of, a, of some great king. And that is, in fact, who he is. He is a herald, a messenger who serves the Christ, the long-awaited king of Psalm 2, the Davidic king. And in this, Paul highlights the importance of what he's about to write. This is not a message from your president. This is not a, an email from your boss. This is not a text message from your doctor. This isn't a public service announcement. This is the word of God. Way more important than anything else you could possibly pick up and read is Paul, servant of Jesus Christ, writing to us the words that Christ has for us to listen to. 
far more significant than anything else we could read. Now, what does he mean when he says that he's a servant of Christ? Well, first it means that he's been called to be an apostle, which literally means he's a sent one. That's what the word apostle means, someone who's sent. In the New Testament, apostles are Jesus's specially commissioned or appointed representatives. They are those who had personally seen the risen Savior. They were eyewitnesses uh, of the resurrected Lord, and they held a unique position of authority in the church. In many ways, they were the original gatekeepers of the gospel. They were the ones that made sure that we got it right, okay? They, went, they traveled around, they listened to churches, they verified where the Spirit had come down on believers. They were the ones that were making sure that there weren't gospel drifts at the very beginning. And so they were the overseers that made sure that the gospel began its spread throughout the nations. If you want to know how it came to Avila, it was because of their work. They were commissioned sent ones that ensured that the message that was given to them by Jesus in Galilee after the resurrection would effectively make it in its purest form to Avila, Texas. So he's that guy. They were especially called... But this is not to say that they were all that special in and of themselves. Several of the apostles were fishermen. Probably would gross you out if you hung out around them. Probably couldn't stand the smell of them. One was a zealot. Another a tax collector. And Paul arguably was the one who was the most unlikely to become an apostle. He was zealous for Old Covenant Judaism. He wanted to stamp out this strange, weird, heretical group known as the Way. You, Christians. In fact, it was at the time that Paul met Jesus that he was on an errand for the Pharisees to hunt down Christians in Damascus, more than likely to lock them up and kill them. He was responsible for the imprisonment, which oftentimes led to execution of many different Christians. He's he's a persecutor. He's someone that hated the Christian church. And yet it was on that road to Damascus that Jesus reveals his will to have Paul as his chosen instrument to carry his name to the Gentiles. Second, as a servant of Jesus Christ, Paul is the one who has been set apart for the gospel of God. Well, set apart may be just another way of being said to be an apostle. He's a sent one. Paul's explanation reveals that he has a very, very particular mission. To preach the gospel of God. That's it. What, what, what does he do? Is he, is he there to politically endorse Caesar or any of his people? No. Is he there to try to create a, a second temple in, in, I don't know, Galatia so that people can experience? Maybe we can make a chain out of the temple? I don't know. That's, that's not what he's doing. He's there very particularly to preach the gospel of God. Of all the things that God calls men to do, this is by far the most important. To speak the gospel. You know, doctors have really important jobs. I want to lessen that. And they... They twitch a finger and the scalpel hits the wrong artery and somebody's life is over. You mess up on the gospel, somebody's eternity is messed up. It has eternal ramifications. Paul unapologetically claims, this is by far the most important thing I could be doing with my life, and this is what I'm going to be doing, speaking the gospel so that the nations will know Jesus 
And herein we catch the first major theme that is interwoven throughout all of Romans. What is Paul going to be talking about in Romans? The gospel. The gospel. There's a lot that can be said from implications of the gospel. But by far, the most important thing he's going to be speaking of is the gospel. Friends, can we just acknowledge that we've experienced a fracturing in our unity? I mean, just small things, how we feel about a cloth mask, how we feel about, you know, political elections, whatever. Small things have revealed cracks in our friendships, in our times when we used to just get to hang out with people. We... We've become the, well, actually, people. You know, the, somebody starts to say something, and the next thing, well, actually, you don't really fully understand all that, you know. Like, we've become those people. And it's, it's revealed just how divided we are. Well, Romans is a chance to kind of just shut up for a moment and recenter on the gospel. To recenter. You see, when, when the pandemic came and when the political thing came, it threw us out of orbit as the people of God. And it's happened globally. I, I don't know of any pastors right now that said that, oh, 2020 was absolutely delightful. don't know any pastors that have said that. Everybody's been thrown off orbit, even myself. And so this is a time for me as a Christian just to say, God, man, I have been knocked off of my center. It's time to recenter around what's most important People will not go to hell if they do or do not wear a mask. God's not going to look at their voter registration card. God is very simply going to ask them whether or not they submitted to the one true king. Time to recenter, Christians. We have a whole hurting world that's going to hell. It's time for us to be, ex- be just like Paul. You want to know what we're about? The gospel. That's what we're going to talk about. We'll write letters about it if you want us to. I don't know what Paul's opinion is on anything in his world. His world was politically tumultuous. I mean, you just talk about it. I mean, they live in the, in the Roman Empire. They have plagues and pandemics and everything going on at this time. I mean, famine, a worldwide famine has been hitting the world around this time. People are starving to death. I don't know what his opinion is on anything. I don't know if he's blaming ERCOT for the famine or not. All I know is that Paul believes in the gospel, and that's his one mission. Friends, recenter, get back in orbit around Jesus. See, these big asteroids and these extraterrestrial moons have come into your solar system and have drawn you in their gravitational pull to begin orbiting around them. As a church, we repent and we come back to the true center, the center of our solar system, the son of God. That's Paul, the man, a servant of Jesus Christ. Now we come to Paul's message. The word gospel simply means good news. William Tyndale once wrote that the word signifies good news that makes a man's heart glad, makes him sing, makes him dance and leap for joy. In other words, it's a, it's a, it's a news 
that is intended to instill its hearers with great delight and joy. Christians are to be joyful people of God because we have good news. We're to be happy people of God. I know happy is such a fickle term, but, but I don't think it's that Christianity leads to anything less than that. I do think we are happy, joyful people. We should be because we have good news. We suffer, we weep, we cry, we get angry, we get frustrated, we spit at each other once in a while, we get agitated and irritated and all these things with one another. But at the end of the day, we have really, really good news. As Paul will explain later, we were completely condemned under the shadow of God's wrath. Absolutely damned. Destined for nothing more than hell. That was you. And in case, you want, in case there's anyone going, well, I don't know if it was truly me. I, I know a lot of people that were worse than me. He, he uses qualifications like, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. He makes it clear there's, there's no one that's outside of the umbrella of God's wrath. Everybody stood under the shadow of God's wrath. Get off your high horse. You were condemned. God had it out for you because of your sin. You deserve to drink the deep, nasty, bitter poison of judgment. But God, in his justice and mercy, poured out his wrath on his son instead, whose perfect obedience has declared us righteous and won our access to the presence of God so that we could go from being God's enemies to being God's children. That's good news, right? I mean, that's something that we can celebrate. There's, yes, there's a lot of things to get ticked off about in this world. But at the same time, we have the good news of what God has done. This is a message, good news, meaning to give you joy. Quit being a sour Christian. Negative Nancy, don't be negative. It's good news. It's news that, that inspires your heart to be a delightful person now. Because your heart should be filled with delight because of what God has done for you. It's in all the navel gazing that we think about ourselves and center on ourselves that tends to get us in trouble. Oftentimes, I'll tell you, 10 out of 10 times when I am a negative person, when I am angry, when I am upset, when I am depressed, even 10 out of 10 times, my focus is not on Christ. You know, a lot of pity party stuff that I do. And yet I have to be reminded of what God has done for me and his son. Paul explains that this same gospel was promised by God beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son. He makes a bold claim. The gospel of Jesus is anchored to the Old Testament Scriptures, which, which means that it reaches all the way back to Adam. This is an old gospel for him 
And for the other New Testament writers, the gospel is not an invention of the New Testament. It's not like you read the Old Testament to find law and wrath in the New Testament to find gospel. No, even in the Old Testament, the gospel is promised, it's foretold, it's anticipated. As Paul says elsewhere, the Old, Test- Old Testament scriptures are intended to make us wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus meaning that they teach us about our sin. They teach us about our need for forgiveness. They teach us about the need and the promise of redemption that will be accomplished through the Messiah. And Paul wasn't the only one to have the, this perspective of the Old Testament, if you think he's unique. First Peter chapter 1, verses 10 through 12, the apostle Peter says the same thing. Concerning this salvation, the salvation that you have, The prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you. You. Who did Isaiah write for? You. Who did Moses write for? You. That they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. According to Peter, the Old Testament prophets understood that they were writing and inquiring about the forthcoming Messiah, the Son, the Son of the woman who had crushed the head of the serpent. The the hope of the nations who would bring suffering to an end and through his own suffering would bring restoration. Carefully read through the Old Testament, you'll find this to be true. You know, Moses wrote of a prophet who was to come and to him all must listen. David foresaw him as the exalted Lord who would sit at the right hand of Yahweh. Isaiah saw that his suffering would lead Uh, would be like a sacrificial lamb and lead to the healing of many. Daniel foresaw the fall of every other kingdom on the earth and the establishment of the mountain of the Messiah, the messianic kingdom of God. Micah put his hope in a ruler from Bethlehem. Jonah prefigured his death and three-day burial. Ezekiel spoke of a new David, a prince who would be a shepherd to God's people. You see, all through the Old Testament, the prophets are digging their hands into the soil, planting seeds that then blossom and bear fruit when we come to Jesus. There's a reason when we read Matthew, we think, man, he reminds me of Moses somehow. There's a reason when Jesus talks about giving bread of life to people, that that, that reminds us of the bread of presence in the tabernacle. There's a reason when John says, and the word became flesh and skenao, tabernacled among us, that we are to think, this is even better. That was a tent. This is a person. All through the, the, the Old Testament seeds growing, sprouting, blossoming, blooming, and then bearing fruit in the New Testament. And Romans will do that over and over and over again. Paul quotes Old Testament scriptures in Romans almost more than he does in any other letter. He uses it to convince you that you are a wicked, dirty sinner. He uses it to convince you that it was God's plan from all along to send Jesus. He uses it to show you that the idea of 
Salvation by grace through faith is not a New Testament concept, but goes all the way back to Abraham and David. Over and over again, telling you that God has just done what he promised to do. It's way bigger than you. Man, I don't know about you guys, but when I go visit somewhere, I've stood on the Great Wall probably nine times. And every time I stand on the Great Wall, I can't tell you how small I feel. Because I'm standing on something that's like, man, any ancestry book that I could look up about my family, like page one is hundreds, if not thousands of years after the Great Wall was built. Like my, my, my family line wasn't even thought of by my family at that point. There's no Jacksons roaming the earth when the Chinese emperor is beginning to build bricks for the Great Wall. Sometimes it helps for you to get perspective to see that there's some things that are much bigger and much older than you. The gospel is that. It has ancient roots. It was the thing that Adam and Eve were told to hope in. I will put enmity between you and the, and, and the woman. I will put enmity between your offspring and her offspring. He will bruise your head and she will bruise you and he will bruise his heel. The Proto-Evangelion, the first statement of the gospel in Genesis 3. Friends, why do we care so much? Why do we speak? Why do we never move beyond the gospel? It's much bigger than us. It's much bigger than us. It's something that we have to live in. And so in Romans, Paul is inviting you out of all the amazing things that you could look at and read and see. He wants you to behold, to actually gaze at and to think about these old gospel fruits that have borne fruit in your life because of what was spoken way, way, way long ago. It's an old gospel that we have, a redemption that was set in motion all the way back in the garden and has come to us. What was promised to Adam, what was promised to Abraham, to David, what Isaiah saw, we know by name. Isaiah couldn't even tell you his name or where he'd come from. Micah got the closest saying he was a ruler from Bethlehem. Moses had no idea. You, you asked Moses, yeah, he's Jesus of Nazareth. Who? Yeah, well, let me tell you about Jesus of Nazareth. And as you begin describing, Moses is like, yeah, that's him. We know more than they do. When, we re, when, when they wrote Exodus, when, when Moses wrote Exodus, he knew it would be incredibly important for all redemption just didn't know how. And we have sight that they don't. They searched and inquired carefully, serving not themselves but us, so that when it did happen, we could be like, yeah, Moses spoke about this long ago. I just relish in this old gospel. So far, Paul has introduced himself. He's an apostle. He's been set apart. He has told us of the gospel that was promised beforehand through the prophets He has clarified that this gospel is concerning God's son. Now he will go into even greater detail about God's son. Keep in mind that Paul's preface is paving the way for what we're about to see through the whole letter. So in that light, it is no surprise that Paul would mention Jesus. And want you to know, even while he's telling you hello, 
who he serves. So we're going to look at Paul's Lord. He tells us that the son was descended from David according to the flesh and declared in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord. As description is small, but it's packed full of all kinds of truth. If you neglect any one of these descriptions that Paul gives, you, you, you effectively alter the identity of Jesus. He's the son of David and the son of God. Those two things are, are equally true. 100% God, 100% man. The, the, the idea that Jesus is descended from David, that's pretty straightforward, right? Just means he's David's son. But it's the following statement, according to the flesh, that leaves room for Paul to explain how Jesus is both God and man. The Son of God is an eternal being, right? I think we all, we've all been told that all, all our lives, that the Son of God is an eternal being. He didn't have a birthday. He didn't have any kind of uh, start date, right? You don't, you don't look to him and find out when the production date was. He's just was. John 1, 1, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Hard to get beyond that. What does John want you to hear? He had no beginning, right? So how does he become descended from David? Well, it's according to the flesh. In other words, the incarnation, in the incarnation, Jesus comes into and from the line of David. He becomes David's son, though he's really David's Lord who has no beginning. He, he gets the Pharisees on this point, by the way, in the Gospels. He asks them, whose son is David? Who's, who's, who, whose Lord is the son of David? And they, you know, or, or whose son is the Messiah, I think is what he asks them. And they answer, well, he's the son of David. It's like, you've answered right, but then why does David look at the son of David and say, the Lord said to my Lord, set at my right hand until I make all your enemies your footstool. They're like, well, I don't know. How can David's son also be David's Lord? Descended from David according to the flesh, but as the spiritual son of God is the eternal one who has no beginning. The one that made David. Again, huge condescension. The only reason we can say that Jesus is the son of David according to the flesh is because the son of God humbled himself, demoted in a sense, didn't take off any of his divine attributes. He was still 100% God when he took on flesh, but yet became David's son, though he was David's Lord. And in that light, he is now the promised king by identifying him as a seed of David, he basically says, this is the Messiah. This is the Christ, the one who's to reign over Israel. But he goes even a step further. He says that this is the son who was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. I hope you understand that the resurrection vindicates everything we believe about Jesus. If there's no resurrection, we have no doctrinal ground to stand on claiming him to be the son of God. It's because he has been resurrected, because he has risen again, that his claim to be the son of God is vindicated. He is who he says that he is. Many men in history have claimed great things about themselves. In the ancient world, kings often took on the status of sons of God. 
Pharaoh was the son of Osiris, the, the uh, god of the underworld. Even Caesar, Caesar Augustus, he was D.V. Phileas, the son of God. That's how they walked around calling him, the son of God. But all those pharaohs and all those Caesars died. And with them, their claims to being the son of God. Jesus, on the other hand, comes and is identified as the Huios Theu, the son of God, dies. Well, there goes that, right? Except for three days later, the tomb is broken open. The spirit powerfully declares, he's the son of God. The resurrection vindicates all. It's the powerful declaration that Jesus is indeed who he says he is. How can I know that Jesus is the one mediator between God and men? How can I know that Jesus is truly Lord of all creation? How can I know that if I put my faith in Jesus, that his promise for justification stands? Well, it's because he's the risen Lord. He doesn't need salvation. He doesn't need any kind of help. Muhammad can't raise himself. The pharaohs died and were entombed. Caesar died. Jesus died and rose again. He's the son of God. And I just think so often we, we, think, we get so used to this. We're just comfortable with this. He's the risen son of God. We say risen because that is the effective badge of proof that he is who he says he is. Son of David, son of God, and he merges these things together when he calls him Jesus Christ, our Lord. Christ, son of David, Psalm 2. Lord, Lord has every divine connotation. It's the Greek equivalent to Yahweh. Sometimes Lord just means sir or master, but typically in the New Testament, when the New Testament writers use it, they use it in reference to Jesus describing his divine status as Yahweh. He is Lord. Curios. We see the same thing in the other apostles. We go to Acts chapter 2. Peter preaches the resurrection to the Jews. And he says that all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both. That word is important. Lord and Christ. This Jesus whom you crucified. That's interesting. Why do you say both Lord and Christ? If, I, if I'm like the same thing, right? I'm Rachel's spouse and husband. I don't really need kind of a qualification, right? To say I'm both Rachel's spouse and husband. That's just redundant. It's just redundant. It takes some kind of distinction to say both for something. So both Lord and Christ. He's not just the son of David who was the promised long-awaited king. He is Lord of creation, seated on the right-hand throne of God, exercising authority over all heaven and earth. The apostles bask in that. They were expecting son of David to sit on a physical throne in Jerusalem. But the son of David is actually Yahweh seated at the right hand of God. Not just some human king but God himself in flesh. All that in a greeting. Can you just imagine that? I mean, this is, it is, Paul can't say hello without sneezing doctrine about the, the gospel of Christ. I mean, it's just, it's just amazing. He just wants you to be clear from the, from the beginning. I'm not talking about a man. He is a man. He's the son of David. I'm not just talking about God in, in this abstract. He is God. He's son of God, son of David. He's the king. 
Not just king of Jerusalem, king of all. I serve that guy. So listen up. Isn't that amazing? Just If you just wonder, okay, should I read this or not? I often scroll through things and I'll find something. And within about two seconds, I know whether or not I'm going to waste my time reading whatever it is that comes across my phone. Or I'll pick up a book and I'll do my little inspectional read. And I know within a few minutes whether it's a book I'm actually going to waste my time reading for the next week or so. Paul's like, yeah, yeah, I know you do that. So let me just tell you real briefly, this is worth reading. Because it's written by a guy serving the Lord in Christ. He speaks from the very beginning about who Jesus is. And then in this, he helps you to understand that Jesus is the heart of the gospel. Do you realize there is no gospel without Jesus Christ? There is no gospel. All this muck and and foolishness about talking about the gospel and Jesus never shadows the conversation. It's not the gospel. God has a wonderful plan for your life. That's not the gospel. Even God loves you. Yes, that's true. Giving people God loves you buttons at the state fair is not the gospel. Putting stickers of, I've got, I go to a White Rhino Coffee Shop, and that's my Christian coffee shop, and I've got my Christian gym. Man, I'm just full of the gospel here. That's not the gospel. Let me be very clear. The gospel is the Son of God who took on flesh, died, was buried, rose again, and gave forgiveness. Man, I'm surprised we have I stepped on toes there. I know. I'm sorry. You've not been evangelizing. <laughs> it, it actually takes time to, to speak about Jesus. He is the gospel. He's the heart of the gospel. All the promises flow from him. He's the fountainhead of grace and peace and forgiveness. He is son of David, son of God. He is Lord. He's Christ. He's the fountainhead of the apostleship and grace. He's the center of it all. So to be, when we say we're gospel-centered people, what we should be actually meaning by that is we are Jesus-centered people, right? Because there is no gospel without Jesus. Now, what's his goal in writing? So we talked about the man, the master, the message. Now let's talk about the goal. Having told us about the subject of the gospel, God's son, he now explains what his goal. He says this, That is through Jesus that we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus. Now, now notice what he says. He doesn't just say that his goal is to bring about faith as if he just wants everybody to consent that Jesus is Lord. It's not just conversion numbers. His goal isn't just obedience, as if these people need to know how to act better and get a better moral code. No, it's obedience of faith. Paul's words are incredibly intentional. I think far too often we think of faith as that thing that you do at the beginning of your walk. When you walk down the aisle and you pray to prayer, that was faith. And obedience is something entirely different. No, no, no. Faith is this thing that sends reverberations out to the rest of your life. Your whole life 
as a disciple should be believing Jesus to the extent that it changes your marriage, to the extent it changes what you worship, to the extent that it changes what you watch and what you say about someone, to the extent that it affects even your image of the government, as we'll see in Romans 13. You see, it's not just, well, we're people of faith, but you know, we don't always live the way we should. No, no, no. Obedience of faith means that you believe in Jesus and now your whole life is jacked up because of that. Nothing stays the same. It's all different. I mean, new creature, what I want, what I love, my fantasies, my dreams, my desires, everything submitted to the feet of King Jesus because I believe him to be King Jesus. Paul's goal is not just that people will pray a prayer. Paul's goal is not that people will sign a card and begin doing church attendance. Paul's goal is not just to give them a runaround with, you know, let me tell you this, and then you can sign the card on the back saying that you assert to this. Paul's goal is that people will hear the message of the gospel and their lives will be wrecked because of that. Their lives will begin experiencing the restoration of what it means to be under the reign of King Jesus. My friends, I, I cannot tell you how many times we get this wrong, even in our own lives. We, we think that believing that because I assert, uh, because I assent to Jesus being king, that that is what he has called me to do. That's, that's my faith. And yet my marriage is on the brink of a divorce or I've sent her the papers or my kids know me as a harsh man or my friends just think that I'm, I'm rather gripey all the time. The fact of the matter is not to beat anyone down, but the reality is, is change your perspective about the gospel. The goal of the gospel is the obedience of faith. Faith that makes you obedient. You wake up on Monday, Jesus is Lord. You still believe that? Great. That's a grace of God. He's preserved you in that. Now, how's it going to affect the way that you gripe about your wife when you can't find your favorite genes? Because if Jesus is king over all things, he's king over your response about when you can't find your jeans and your, your wife didn't wash them because you didn't put them in the laundry basket. Tuesday morning, Jesus is Lord. You still believe that? Praise God. Preservation of God. His grace preserves his people. You still believe Jesus is Lord Tuesday morning? Amen. Oh, but your, your friends didn't text you to see how you're feeling. And so suddenly it's your whole day is down and broken and you just, nobody cares and you don't, you don't want to see anybody. And now you're just going to careen down. Friends, Jesus sees you. He's Lord of heaven and earth, which means there's not one inch of your dark house that he cannot see you in. And he promised, I will be with you even until the end of the age. How did that somehow become less than our friends texting us? No, that's, that's a beautiful church. Wednesday morning, you, you wake up. Jesus is Lord. 
Jesus is Lord, right? And you still believe that. Praise God, preservation of God. How does it affect your joy in the Lord when your kid starts vomiting over the kitchen floor? The other kid tries to flush the blocks down the toilet. And the other one's wearing his banana as a hat. If Jesus is Lord, it impacts even that. Your aim and mission as a parent is to make disciples, which means modeling peace and grace and forgiveness and love and long suffering. (laughs) Because he did the same thing for us. If you're going to be a Christian, be a Christian. Don't just say that you believe what Christians believe. Believe what a Christian believes and let that faith work itself out to obedience. He wants that for all the nations, all the nations, for Chinese people to hear the name of Jesus and to convert their lives, their whole life, not just convert, but to convert all of life, marriage, job, parenting, everything to glorify him. You wonder why we speak so much about evangelism and missions and going and sending and praying and because this is the goal. This is what we're to work for for the next two. We've been doing it for two millennia and it hasn't changed. The goal is that all nations will hear the gospel and become obedient. We come now to our close. As we come to the end of this preface, I don't want to skip verse 7. All that was power-packed gospel truth that Paul just gives us. You you push one little clause, right? And and the way that Brandon said this, he goes, man, Paul has more clauses in one sentence than Hobby Lobby does in July. (laughs) Absolutely true. I mean, you press one clause and it just oozes with gospel truth. I mean, it's, it's amazing. But I don't, want to, I don't want to end without talking about his greeting to the Romans. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Loved by God, called to be saints. Now what's interesting about that is both of those phrases are Old Testament descriptions of Israel. Loved by God, called to be saints. But the challenge of it is, is that the Romans have Gentiles in their church. He's writing to both Gentiles and Jews here, but he speaks of them as if they're both the people of God. That's interesting, isn't it? As if they're, as if they're the same loved by God and saints that they've been called to be. My friend, can I just, can I just tell you right now, if you believe in Jesus, it doesn't matter if you had a porn addiction in your past. It doesn't matter if you had a drug addiction. It doesn't matter if you were a CEO and didn't have very much, many problems in your life at all. The fact of the matter is, is whoever you are, if you have put faith in Jesus, you are loved by God, called to be a saint. Which means that if the person behind you or beside you believes in Jesus, be very careful about what you say about them. They're loved by God and called to be saints. I sure hope our speech reflects the fact that we're loved by God and called to be saints. Paul writes to those who are loved by God and called to be saints, which means he's writing to you, Christian. And he ends with a very pregnant phrase, grace and peace from God our Father and Lord Jesus Christ. 
grace, that undeserved merit, that, that, that unmerited favor, that unmerited love, the goodness of God that's not earned. Shalom, that's, that's a pretty old Jewish phrase, but it basically means everything being right in the world, right? Shalom is when I'm right with God and I'm right with others. Things are just right. Grace and peace from God, our Father. Subtle detail there. How does God become our Father? Well, he'll get there in Romans 8. You'll have to come back then. Grace and peace from God, our Father, and our Lord Jesus Christ. So how do you apply a greeting from an epistle like the one in Romans 1 through 7? When someone's just kind of saying hello and telling you a whole bunch of truths, it's kind of hard, like, well, I go love your wife better, I hope, you know, I... Somewhere, I'm sure it's somewhere in Romans 1 through 7. I think oftentimes when we read these scriptures, we, we tend to want to know, okay, what to do, what to do. You know, tell me, what, tell me something I should do this week. Romans 1 through 7 doesn't give us a whole lot of commands. Paul doesn't start off saying, Paul, a servant of God, by the way, I want you all to tithe more. He doesn't start off that way. He doesn't start with commands. Why? Because true application of the gospel doesn't begin by doing. In fact, the whole gospel is about what we haven't done and what we're unable to do. The gospel is about who we behold. Christians, there are applications for sure, and we should have applications. We should apply the word of God. There will be plenty of them throughout Romans. But as we end this, one simple application is this. Don't look at yourself. Look to the Son. Look to him who is the son of David, the son of God, the Lord in Christ, who has given grace and peace. You know, the whole New Testament speaks of the way that we're transformed. We're not transformed by hard work. We're not transformed by snapping our fingers and stopping bad habits. We're transformed as we gaze into the son of God. As we see his heart, as we feel his love, as we experience his holiness, as we submit to him as king, that's how we are transformed. So, in summary, Paul says, hello, look to Jesus. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much that we have the grace to get to start Romans. Father, Paul is rather long-winded, and I pray that you will use this long-winded greeting to transform us even now, and that at the end of time, we will be able to thank you for the work that you did in us, just because an apostle took the time to tell the Romans hello. May we be people that are so saturated and centered in the gospel of Jesus Christ, that we can't even say hello without speaking of the good news. Father, we love you, and we ask that you be with us in our worship. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.